And then next week, we'll light the Christmas candle. So to start today, we're actually going to watch a Bible Project video about love. So if you will, turn your attention to the screen. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. 
Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. I love these videos. They're just so good. I, I love how they take these virtues, joy and hope and peace. Is this on? I'm concerned that it's not. Is it just me talking up here? Can you guys hear me okay? Oh, oh, there it goes. Okay. Um, I love how he takes these virtues, joy and hope and peace and love, and we get to connect with, like, the vast church community, like, all over the world and over thousands of years to understand like, the way that they experienced it or how they talked about it or thought about it or um, interacted with one another about it. I especially like how they tell us the words in other languages. Like when they get to the Aramaic, like the word for love is rachma. Like does anybody else hear Klingon? No? Just me? <laughs> but I think, I think like it's so good to just remember that like we're not alone in this, you know? Like we're not just like some little church huddled in modern United States trying to like fight the good fight and keep the candles going or something. But that for thousands of years, God's people have been learning and teaching each other about love and how to love. And just when we celebrate Jesus' place in this story, this pinnacle of the, this moment when like Christ is born and he, his ministry begins and he starts setting things to rights, just how so many people before us have anticipated the times that we get to live in. And hopefully we can um, steward this knowledge in this community in a way that we can invite our children into it and then they can grow up and invite their children into it so that people long after us will also be able to celebrate the way that we celebrate um, these high holy days where God really comes close to us. We've been focusing on our cast of characters, kind of the people surrounding Jesus for his uh, birth story. Um, we uh, started a couple weeks ago with Anna and Simeon and their hope we talked about the peace of Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. Last week, we talked about John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth, and also Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the joy that they experienced around the birth of Jesus. And so today, we're going to turn our attention to Joseph. This is Mary's husband, who was like a stepfather or foster father to Jesus. So this is Matthew, starting in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18. And this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after the Lord had considered this, an angel of the Lord, or sorry, after he had considered it, the Lord didn't consider it, Joseph considered it, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, 
and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for preserving these events with just so many intimate and personal details about the people involved so that we can really understand the work that you're doing, the story that you're writing, the way that you're redeeming the world and us. God, I ask this morning that we would experience your presence, that you draw close, and that we would know that you're here, and that by your spirit you would lead us in the way of love, you would teach us, you would make us more loving towards ourselves even and toward others. We ask for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you notice in the passage that we, we never actually hear anything that Joseph says? Like, we don't get to hear what Joseph has to say. If, uh, if you were cast as Joseph in the, the Advent pageant or the Christmas pageant, it would be a non-speaking role. Like, Zacharias has things to say. Mary and Elizabeth have long passages that they need to memorize. But if you're Joseph, you're, like, getting off easy with the sheep. You don't actually have to utter any words at all, just like react to the events around you. So we can only know what's going on in Joseph by evaluating his actions. So what do we see in this passage? What can we know about Joseph's character based on what we read in the Bible? And the first thing is that Joseph is so gracious with Mary. I talked last week about how Mary's plans were altered when uh, God called her to be the mother of Jesus. And uh, we wondered about, you know, had she like dreamed about her wedding day, what she would look like and what she would say and what people would think of her, what her parents might say to celebrate her. But what about Joseph's plans and Joseph's hopes? You know, I think maybe even more so then than now, it's maybe not super masculine to think about like boys dreaming about their wedding day. But all the men that I know that are married, uh, and I took a little survey this week, would say that their wedding day is one of the most important days of their life. And so I think Joseph surely was like having a, 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 an anticipating getting married to Mary, you know, like was he nervous when he proposed? Like what did that day even look like? Did they know each other from before? Like had they been childhood friends? And so if we think about the plans that Joseph had as he gets engaged to Mary and, um, and it works a little bit differently for them as for us, right? Because it's like he's her husband, but they haven't exactly gotten married together. They're pledged, but it also refers to him as her husband. So like we, they're like in this engaged period, but like it's like things are set, you know, in stone. And so for him, like what was it like when those dreams were dashed? Unlike Mary, Joseph's plans didn't get changed by an angel. Joseph's plans got changed by finding out that Mary was pregnant. So don't you think he must have been like really hurt and disappointed? Maybe he felt betrayed or foolish. Like maybe he felt like he had made a stupid choice or he'd gotten everything wrong. Because at least for some time, the information that was available to him would have only been proof that Mary wasn't who she, he thought she was. I think it's important for us to imagine this time frame between Joseph finding out that Mary was pregnant and then when the angel shows up to explain things. And so let's just look back at what that says exactly in the passage kind of the second half of verse 18 and verse 19. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce, to divorce her quietly. This is love. 
Joseph could have focused on himself during these events. He could have thought about his life, his wife, his future, his status. What would people think of him? That his fiance, as we understand the term, stepped out on him before he was even married. He could have prioritized himself here. He could have pointed a finger at her to distance himself from her and to let her bear this scandal alone. In fact, I almost wonder, and this isn't in the Bible, okay, so we're just guessing, but I almost wonder if this delayed message from the angel wasn't a deliberate deliberate move by God to ensure Joseph's free will. Maybe if Joseph had left Mary in disgrace, maybe he wouldn't have been visited by an angel at all. Maybe we would be celebrating a little bit different of a story about Mary, the single mother of Jesus. We just don't know. Joseph's compassion here, the way that he reacts to a woman who he has every reason to believe has betrayed him, has broken the most sacred promise that two adults can make to each other, his, his compassion and his decision to protect her, even though she didn't protect him, this is love. God lets us see Joseph's qualifications here, his steadfastness, his humility, the love of the man that God chose to raise and protect his own son. Joseph is gracious with Mary, and loving God empowers us to love others. I believe that Joseph must have had a strong faith and have, has, have walked with God up to this point to be able to have this kind of virtuous and kind and gracious and merciful reaction to Mary. We also see that Joseph trusts God. The angel does show up and explains things. And, uh, you know, Josh and I were kind of joking about this the other day. We were, like, saying, like, imagine being, like, Joseph's best friend at this time. And for some reason, like, we, we then, like, acted out a little scene, like, in our conversation. And, like, Joseph's best friend is apparently, like, a beach boy from the 80s. But, <laughs> but it's like, like, I, like, could you just imagine, like, dude, like, oh, my gosh, she's pregnant. Like, dude, you know, and so Josh and I, like, seriously, this is what nerd pastors do. We're just, like, sitting in our living room, like, dude, you know, like, wouldn't that be weird? And then, like, dude, you had a dream? Like, what, the angel, an angel? Like, are you sure? Like, did you have pizza right before you went to bed? And then, like, what the angel says, like, this is the Holy Spirit who did this, like, I think, like, a couple of things. I feel like, I hope that the best friend was like, I knew she didn't do that to you, dude. Like, I just knew that. Like, or it's like, like that little turtle from, uh, or from, What's the, from Finding Nemo, you know, like all the little Australian turtles, dude, dude. So Josh and I are just saying, dude, dude, back and forth to each other. And then um, we also considered, like, you know, like maybe there was a moment where he's like, bro, like, sure is good you weren't mean to God's mom, bro. Like, that could have been bad, <laughs> you know? So anyway. Um, anyway, so Joseph has this dream, and everything c- clicks into place. So now everything makes perfect sense, right? Like, Joseph's life is good again, because now all he has to do is travel with his very pregnant wife uh, across the country for the census, and then he has to be midwife for God's son to be born um, in a barn. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And then he'll get another dream in Matthew 2. I don't have it up on the screen. I'm just going to read a couple. We'll just skip through this a little bit. But he has another dream in Matthew 2, and an angel says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him which Joseph does. And then he has another dream. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Then he has another dream. At this point, even Matthew is tired of writing about all these dreams. So we just get like the summary. But when he heard, Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, 
He withdrew to the district of uh, Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So Jesus is get, or not Jesus, Joseph is getting these instructions, and he's following them to the letter, which is really good. Um, and he's also fulfilling these prophecies. You know, out of my son, I call Egypt. Out of Egypt, I call my son, and he will be called a Nazarene. And I think Joseph is able to play this role in Jesus' life because he trusts God. Loving God empowers us to trust him. I just think of all the noise and distractions that Joseph must have had to resist during this time. And all like the self-doubt, you know, like was that dream real? Did I just flee to Egypt for no reason at all? Like I can't imagine that... um, uh, like, the, oh, sorry, uh, I'm thinking a man who is like being like able to be so gracious to Mary must have been listening to God's voice and really have like a lot of practice in doing that. And so then he keeps listening. And every time he gets instructed to move and to leave everything that he has, he does it twice. I can't imagine that like little kid Joseph as like a five or a six-year-old when asked what he wants to be when he grows up says a political refugee. Like that's not an easy life that he would have chosen for himself. And yet he follows the Lord's instruction. So then let's talk about the barn, the birth in a barn situation. Joseph doesn't let feelings of entitlement get in the way. There's this platitude that I'm becoming less fond of over time. In fact, I'm starting to wonder if maybe it's not just a little bit heretical. Um, I told Josh, I think, like, we should do a sermon series on, like, is it heresy or not kind of things for, like, just, like, all the little sayings that we have for each other. Maybe you've heard this one. I've heard this a lot, which is, God ordered it, so God will pay for it. And that's, like, kind of true, you know? But then it's kind of like, uh, I don't know. Like, if we mean God ordered it, so God will pick up the tab, and all you have to do is be obedient, which would be super easy, and, like, get a facial, everything is fine. Then, like, no, no, he won't. (laughs) God will not do that. If we mean God ordered it, and so he'll make it technically possible but it will cost you up to and including everything that you have, then yes, then yes, I agree with that. But I feel like that nuance often gets like missed a little bit when someone is declaring this promise, you know, when we're kind of like, you know, excited and, and, and praying to, to over one another. But God, um, God does pay the price for our sins. That's completely true. But he calls us to give up our lives, all we have and all we are, to follow him. Part of participating in God's work and like, Let's just think about that for a second. Like, we are invited to participate in God's work. He's restoring the world. Like, he's bringing his people back to himself. He'll restore creation. At the end of time, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of offering the invitation of Jesus, who will say, everything you've ever done wrong, I will make it right. We get to be a part of that. But participating in this work, it does come at a cost to us. It costs Joseph. God didn't pay for a place at the inn. God didn't fly the family first class to and from Egypt. God invited Joseph to fulfill a critical role in the birth and life of Jesus, and it cost Joseph to be obedient. God doesn't let feelings of entitlement, or Joseph doesn't let feelings of entitlement get in the way. Love empowers us to give and to live sacrificially. Let's consider our video from the beginning of the sermon. Loving God and loving others are two sides of the same coin. I love that. I thought that was so beautiful how they say, you know, loving God like is loving our neighbors. Loving neighbors, like that's expressing our love for God. And loving God and loving our neighbors, it can cost us. Loving our neighbors or loving our enemies, 
or even, and I say this on the eve of a time when maybe some of us are going to be visiting family we haven't seen for a little while, sometimes it's even hard to like love our loved ones, you know? Sometimes we disagree about things that are important, or sometimes at no fault of their own, they get sick or they fall into deep needs that we need to be a part of meeting those needs, and it costs us. Love costs. But loving God empowers us to bear those costs. We don't get a pass on the cost of love. God doesn't often wave a magic wand and make things easy. Free will must be preserved. There's a lot that we have to learn and be shaped by when we go through difficult experiences. Sometimes God steps in and does miraculous things. In fact, I weirdly had like a very specific prayer answered this week, which was like super cool. But like there's still work for me to do with that, you know? Like it wasn't just like, oh, my prayer is answered, and so now I can just like have a sandwich and a nap, <laughs> you know? It was like my prayer was answered, and now I'll have this conversation, and hopefully we'll be able to see this other good thing happen, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, like, I still have my assignments, you know? Like, I still have work set before me to do. And God empowers me to do that work with hope and joy and peace and love. This week, or this month, we've talked about a lot of tips, like what can we do, take risks, pursue community, trust God, embrace the, engage the world, you know, trust God when you engage the world because you have to rely on God to, um, you know, experience some of the things that happen in this world. And when we experience those things and we're driven back to God and trust for him, like we've talked about a lot of things over Advent. And today, instead of adding more tips or try this or let's run an experiment, you know, I'd rather just share um, this, one of my favorite movies and I always get the name wrong, which is really embarrassing. Um, I often call it Forks and Knives, which is not what it's called. It's called Knives Out. Have you seen this movie? <laughs> like, I like, like the number of times I've said to Josh, like, you want to watch Forks and Knives? And he just like looks at me blankly. And, <laughs> and then he'll say, do you mean Knives Out? <laughs> yes. Yes, I mean Knives Out. I don't know if you've seen the movie Knives Out. I'm going to spoil it right now. I'm going to give you a lot of the plot from the beginning of the movie and a little bit from the end. So if you haven't seen it, um, this would be, and, or if for any reason you want to like flee this uh, church service, you can like run out, and we'll all assume you just don't want the movie to be ruined for you. It came out at least a year ago, maybe two, at least one. Last year, at least two on. Um, anyway, so uh, so spoilers are coming. Um, I love this movie so much because I think it has this beautiful presentation of the gospel. If you use your imagination just a little bit to understand what's going on. Um, okay, like maybe I'm making a connection here, but let's make the connection together, and we'll all be like, ooh, that religious movie, Forks and Knives. Um, <laughs> So in the beginning of the movie, this is a movie about um, a, a crime novelist. He like has written lots of, you know, like imagine like a, oh, I don't, I don't know their names. So I'm not going to try. So um, anyway, he's written lots of, like an Agatha Christie kind of a guy, right? So he's made millions, and his family is horrible. He has adult children, and they're like gold digging, money grubbing bad guys. Like every, like you meet one, and it's always like the next is last, worse than the last, and they're just terrible. But there's this wonderful young woman. She's the like in-home nurse. Like she comes and visits the author, and she administers his medicine because he has some kind of a condition. So very early in the movie, like she's visiting, and you can tell they have a very warm relationship, maybe a little father-daughter kind of a relationship going on. They like play chess together, and um, you know he kind of crabs about his medical issues, and she takes it all in stride. And you know they, they clearly like they share love for one another, and um, and then tragically. Uh, she switches his medicine. She gets it mixed up. And so she gives him a big dose, or a little dose of the medicine she's supposed to give him a big dose for. And then she gives him a big dose of, like, I think it's the pain medicine or something instead of a little dose. And the big dose will prove fatal. 
So, like, she realizes what she's done, and she explains to him, like, basically, you're, you have 10 minutes left to live. Like, you're going to die really soon. And she starts to, and she describes to him, like, what's going to happen. And she tries to call 911, and he stops her because he's a crime novelist, right? So he puts all the pieces of the puzzle together really, really quickly, and he realizes some things. And here's a spoiler, I think. Um, he has left all of his money to her in his will. So, like, he's got these, all these children who are around him who are kind of, like, fighting over, like, when dad dies, who gets the money and who gets the empire or whatever, you know. But he's left it all to her. This, uh, this lowly home care nurse worker, I think her mother is undocumented. Like, she's vulnerable. She's powerless. He's left her his millions. And he's realizing that his horrible children will press charges suggesting that she murdered him. So that way she won't be able to inherit. Her life will be ruined. Her mother, what will happen to her? And his horrible children will fight over the money for the rest of their lives. And he doesn't want that to happen. So he starts very quickly explaining to her. He like catches this plot really fast and is like, this is what you've got to do. And he talks to her, he talks to her through like, you need to leave this way, and then you need to come back and you need to establish an alibi like this and stay calm when you're with the police and do this and do this and do this, like trying to scheme, trying to help her hide this because he knows if his, if his death is discovered to be an overdose of medicine, she'll be accused of um, murdering him. So he says, so, and so you do all this and I'm going to kill myself. So like he's going to like slit his throat so that he dies and they assume that his death is by suicide. And, um, and then the rest of the movie is all of that stuff happening and going wrong and things getting fixed and stuff. But just in that moment, it's like the last 10 minutes of his life, but it's not his life that's flashing before his eyes. It's her future that he's thinking about. And instead of having any regrets or thinking about his legacy or feeling sorry for himself or even being angry at her, for creating this accident that will kill him. He just brushes all that aside immediately. And in his love and his care and his compassion for her, he makes a plan for how to make her safe. And I think we see this in Jesus. I think we see this reflected even in Joseph. Betrayed by Mary, he makes a plan to keep her safe, even though he thinks it's her fault that his life has been ruined and hers. And just that, that like total focus on the other, that dismissal of our own things and saying, you know, I'm not here for me. I'll be fine. I'll figure it out. But like, I'm worried about you. That generosity, that giving, that's the gospel. And I have to be honest, when I, when I watched the video at the beginning and I watched it a couple times this week to prepare for the sermon, love and rachma and made my Klingon joke and all that stuff, um, you know, I, I actually, like, I didn't feel super inspired by it. I wish I could say that I did. Like, I know I'm supposed to. I'm a pastor. I want to say, like, I watched this video about the Bible, and my soul soared, and I, you know, worked on peace on earth. But I didn't. I actually kind of felt a little bit tired and a little bit overwhelmed. And I know I don't have a good reason to. Like, I'm well cared for. I have a pretty easy life. As far as lives go, like, relatively, like, I've got a pretty good deal. But, like, just this, like, God loves you, so love other people, embrace the poor, get close to those with needs. Like, it just made me kind of feel a little bit down, like, oh, like, I need to be doing more, but first I've got to finish my Christmas shopping because there are all these expectations. I want my kids to have the same kind of Christmas as all their friends, and I want to keep up with cousins and all of these things, you know? But I think sometimes God just gives us these little nuggets and, like, delivered through Hollywood and thanks Amazon Prime for me with forks and knives of when I think of that, like, I am inspired and I am lifted up. You know, I am just, like, reminded that 
loving the other person and putting them first, even when it costs us. Like, that is such a beautiful, wonderful thing. We see Joseph do this. We see Mary do this. Anna and Simeon and Zacharias and Elizabeth. We see God do this for us. We see Jesus do this over the course of his life and his public ministry, his death on the cross. And would that we could be just like that, that that this story could be reflected in our own lives and that we would make the most of the opportunities that we have to love our neighbors and our enemies and our loved ones and the poor and people with needs and our coworkers. I've given you a cheat sheet on how to share the gospel with them now. You can say, it's like that movie, Forks and Knives. (laughs) So let's take some time this morning to pray. Would you stand? The invitation to prayer is going to be very simple. If you want to experience God's love, or if you want to be empowered to share God's love with others, you could come forward and get prayer. The way we usually do it is if you come and stand in the front or on the sides, someone who's been through like our prayer training will come up, they'll put their hand on your shoulder, they'll ask your name, you can tell them as much or as little about why you've come up for prayer, and um, then they'll do all the heavy lifting and like take your concerns before the Lord. And um, then just one other thing, if when I was talking, when I confessed that like I wasn't super inspired by the movie, but like if you thought like, I don't know, I was, or by the, vid- the little video, if you thought I am inspired, or, or if you like me are inspired by forks or knives out, um, then uh, if that's like just bubbling up in you and you feel like, oh, I have so much love that I want to share, I just want to like deputize you, like look around the room, and if you see somebody that you feel like God's highlighting to you, like somehow they just seem to be like on your heart, they're really important, I want to say like just to them and ask if you can pray for them. If they say no, that's fine. Consent is important. If somebody, you know, nobody's going to like tackle anybody and pray for them. But like, if you're just like really feeling God's love, I think that's a gift for us to share. And I want you to know that that'd be okay to do in this context this morning. So let's sing one last song to Jesus.